Hey everyone, we've got something really special for you today. Uh, actually, cash is off the grid for a while. So we actually got our mutual friend, Lee Smith, who is the author of The Plot Against the President and The Permanent Coup, to join us and actually guest host for a day. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cash's Corner. Lee, you know, it's so fitting that you would be the one to be guest hosting today because I actually became aware of Cash Patel and his role in all of this in your book, The Plot Against the President. And it was really uh, you, I believe, who connected us ultimately at the beginning. Oh, I'm very happy to hear it. It's been an immensely uh, profitable relationship, not just for, for you and Cash and Epoch Times, but really, I mean, just all the different, all the information that you guys provide, the insight that the show provides. And, um, you know, you really launched Cash as a media superstar. You see him on Truth Social, hundreds of thousands of followers. And I have to say, I mean, I, I'm really surprised. But every time I look at the stuff that he's posting, it's brilliant. It's informative. It's a lot of fun. So I couldn't be happier uh, to have been the person who, who in introduced the two of you. You know, when you read the plot against the president, I'm just kind of thinking back a little bit. You know, Cash really understood how the DOJ worked and he you know the thing that really really uh, made an impression on me was that he really he figured out how to depose these witnesses in ways that they could not kind of get out of the fact that they really knew nothing about Russia collusion and that kind of set the stage for unraveling uh, Russiagate. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was one of the really important parts, you know, writing the book and telling the story. I have to say also, I, I, you know, I, I didn't know that authors necessarily have favorite lines or favorite passages from their book. But there's a part where Cash is talking about, you know, um, the investigation that he and uh, former Congressman Nunes and Jack Langer and those guys set up over at the House Intelligence Committee. And Cash says uh, it was our thing. You know, just how they named it, Objective Medusa. And you see, um, you just see the amount of effort that these guys put into getting to the bottom of, of, of different issues that were plaguing the Department of Justice at the time and that uh, tragically seemed to have only gotten much worse uh, with our federal law enforcement authorities. But yeah, Cash's insight into the DOJ and the FBI, lots of these people he worked with, and you, you know, he, he expresses profound respect for the people who are really doing the jobs. And the people who are not, he is rightly contemptuous of them and expresses uh, on behalf of the American public our contempt for the people who are deceiving Americans and hurting the country. Well, so oh, I want to talk about two things today. Um, one of them is this, you know, this new filing from John Durham uh, about on the Danchenko case. I mean, some wild revelations in there. And at the same time, I mean, many of us seem to agree at this point that this Mar-a-Lago raid was kind of an extension of this original Russiagate, which, of course, John Durham, you know, is seeking some accountability around. And at the same time, there's uh, a whole series of new events that are transpiring that seem to be deeply connected, and you've actually been writing about this. But let, let, let's start with the Danchenko case, this Danchenko filing. I mean, okay, Lee, when you read this thing, what did you think? I mean, the first thing that stands out, which is pretty amazing, and, you know, we see a lot of our, our friends and our social media sleuths, and the first thing that they pointed out was the fact that this guy who is now, he's going to be on trial in October, Igor Danchenko, is that he was a confidential human source for the FBI. 
And the most astonishing thing was they made him a confidential human source uh, after they knew he'd been lying. He was the primary subsource for Christopher Steele's now notorious dossier of reports alleging Donald Trump's uh, connections to Russia, which we now know is, you know, well, we knew, many of us knew at the time it was absolute garbage. Um, so this guy, Danchenko, was the person who was feeding Steele with a lot of this nonsense. When the FBI first, uh, when they say they first interviewed Danchenko, in January 2017, Danchenko walked a lot of it back saying, yeah, you know, I was exaggerating or it was bar talk. Nonetheless, the FBI decided to make him a confidential human source, which meant a couple different things. The first thing it meant was they were paying him, right? They, now they had them on the payroll, which meant the U.S. taxpayer was paying for this guy who had lied to help frame a presidential candidate. Um, and then the president of the United States. In January 2017, Donald Trump was president of the United States, and they hired the guy who was behind the lies that got a warrant to spy in his campaign. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Hey, uh, let me just jump in. To the guy who told them he was lying. Y yeah. He said he'd been exaggerating. He said, yeah, I think Steele misunderstood this or, you know, uh, it was bar talk or, you know, that's what it was. And, um, well, I mean, of course, the FBI at that point kept investigating Donald Trump. They would have Carter Page under a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant. The last renewal was at the end of June. So they were, uh, they were spying on the Trump circle. They, ha they were collecting the electronic communications of the Trump circle into, um, it appears, into the early fall of 2017. So it's, it's, it's pretty astonishing. And that's what really st stood out for most of the people who were going through this new filing. Um, now, I will say that, that one of the issues that a lot of people have raised and that certainly struck me when I, when I first saw it was the way that John Durham has shaped this case is the way he shaped the Michael Sussman case as well. Um, you know, the Sussman case where he was acquitted of, um, of, uh, of lying to the FBI. Well, to do that, to set that case up, Durham had to frame it so that Michael Sussman uh, came in and lied to the FBI, and the FBI was the party who had been, that had been deceived, right? That was the, the, the sucker or the patsy. He's doing the same thing with the Danchenko trial. Um, the numerous accounts he's charged Danchenko with are for lying to the FBI. The question is, and this is something, Jan, you and I have been speaking about for, for years now, and I know that most of the viewers of Cash's Corner are incredibly well read in on the whole subject, but I think our general assessment is that the FBI knew very well that Danchenko was making this stuff up, as was Christopher Steele, because in fact, the FBI had outsourced their lies right, to contractors, some of whom they wound up paying, we now find out, like Igor Danchenko. So that's, I think, a pro... Uh, I don't know enough. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see when Cash comes back um, to talk about the different legal issues that, that this may raise. But I think a lot of people are wondering, is John Durham ever going to turn his attention to the FBI? Because if he's again making them out to be the patsy 
um, that they were lied to by Igor Danchenko and they were operating in good faith, a lot of people are going to be um, more than disappointed. They're going to look at this as though um, it was a cover-up. If it's protecting the FBI and just going after people like Sussman and Danchenko, that's going to raise a lot of questions. Well, okay. Well, let me ask this, and I, I realize we can't really sort of dig into the legalities of this because neither of us are the are, are experts in this. But I mean, couldn't he just simply be trying to establish that he lied to the FBI, and this is you know this is a crime, and this is the way to basically um, you know hold him accountable for doing this with the whole FBI question, whether the FBI was willingly taking the lies or, or encouraging or whatever it is that, that might be alleged, um, that that would be a separate issue to deal with. I'm, well, that's the hope, that he's using this as an instrument to get Danchenko, uh, well, to get him convicted. And then I think also in the hope that he'll be able to build on this and then he'll be able to go after the FBI. Or who knows, maybe Igor Danchenko has so much pressure on him, he'll feel compelled to talk and give up different, um, you know, different officials at the FBI or give up uh, Clinton campaign officials or start giving people up. That's the hope. But again, what looks so strange about this is, I mean, here's the basic setup. Um, and this is information that was, uh, we knew about it before, but it's information that Durham now wants to introduce into the trial of Danchenko. The fact that Danchenko was under a counterintelligence investigation by the FBI in 2010. So, I mean, you're right. Jan, I mean, we shouldn't jump the gun here. Neither of us are lawyers, and we should really rely on cash for this stuff. And we'll we'll get his his information soon. But if it was me, and they're charging my client, and they said, and I would say, wait a minute, the FBI had this guy under counterintelligence investigation, and then they hire him as a confidential human source. And you're telling me the problem here is that my guy was lying to the FBI. There's something going on over there. There's something going on at FBI headquarters and you're looking to hang my guy out to dry and that's not the problem. The problem is at FBI headquarters. My guy should walk. That's, that's how I see it because the story is pretty weird. So the FBI was fooled? How were they fooled? They had a counterintelligence investigation on the guy. So uh, they found out he was not a Russian agent. Um, we're not working on behalf of Russia at the time. Uh, but uh, uh, again, the idea that, well, you know, now we found out that, that this guy that we once suspected of being a spy, he's been the one feeding all this information. And now we know he's not telling the truth. And now we're going to make him a confidential human source. Boy, it sure feels pretty. It, it, it sure smells bad. And we know what these Washington juries are like. They're ringing up January 6th prisoners for insane, ludicrous charges. They let Michael Sussman walk. Are they going to let Igor Danchenko walk as well? So this most recent filing, uh, it raises a lot of interesting questions about Durham's case. And it also points to corruption at the FBI. Jan, you and I have been looking at this for so long. But I mean, I I have to say there's still things that happen that surprise me, maybe just because it's more more disgusting than we previously knew. But yeah, this is pretty bad. Well, and the one thing I think that we you haven't talked about yet, which I think is a kind of a critical element, is what are the implications from the perspective, for example, of Michael Horowitz, who's like, you know, trying to figure out 
you know, what, what is happening. He's doing an internal investigation of the FBI. What are the implications of someone like Danchenko actually being a confidential human source for people that are trying to do internal investigations? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I asked that yesterday on social media, again, looking for legal advice. Um, you know, I, I, I said uh, Michael Horowitz, the inspector general at the Department of Justice, who wrote that very long and informative report in December 2000, uh, 2019. He know that Igor Danchenko was a confidential human source at that point, that the you know primary subsource for the dossier had now been brought into the FBI. I mean, that's a big question. If Horowitz uh, did know that, of course, that... Um, I wouldn't say it entirely vitiates uh, that inspector general's report, but it certainly compromises it. And if he didn't know, well, again, that points to more deception, uh, more deception at the FBI. But it, 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 it is, it's just mind boggling because the more and more clarity that we think that we're getting, the more details that we think we're getting, there's so much more than we possibly could have imagined. I was speaking to one of the guys um, from Congressman Nunez's, former Congressman Nunez, his investigation. And he said, look, I mean, this is, is, is everyone who was involved in this, were they all confidential human sources? What's going on? And it, it's, it's strange because I remember having a conversation with a journalist about three years ago. <clears throat> and this was a, a foreign correspondent who's a, who had actually been based in Moscow. And so he actually knows something about the Russians. He knows something about Russian organized crime. And he also knew something about the former Wall Street Journal reporters, Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, who set up this garbage. He said, you know, to, to me, what this looks like, this looks like a, a huge catastrophe. And it wouldn't surprise me if this is all made up of FBI confidential human sources. So who knows if that'll be the next shoe to drop. We'll find out that a whole bunch of sources and a whole bunch of people who were feeding stuff in in the dossier, who were sending people in and out of the FBI, were also confidential human sources of the bureaus. So, of course, Steele was one of these confidential human sources. We have Halper, we have Joffe. Um, you know, these are all sort of, you know, very, very important figures as their as as their information came out. But the fact that they were designated as these confidential human horses made them essentially, you know, very difficult to scrutinize. I think that that's the thing that I find so interesting. And this is, you know, what people are arguing is is maybe the reason that they were made that way, because, you know, it doesn't seem to make any sense to make someone like Danchenko, a confidential human source, you know, he's lying. You know, he's not really a Russian agent because he ran that counterintelligence on him. What, what is he supposed to be confidential on, right? Well, you know, maybe you want to keep him out of scrutiny. That's the theory. Yeah, I think that's the thing. They wanted to bury him. You know, they wanted to bury Igor Danchenko. They didn't want people asking questions. And you'll remember back in May 2018, once the, you know, the investigation that Cash was leading, um, Objective Medusa, they were asking different questions. They were asking for different documents um, at the Department of Justice. And the, the DOJ's response was what? They started leaking to the press. They started freaking out that uh, Nunes and Patel are going to get people killed. They're asking questions about confidential human sources. So that's what they do with this thing, with the confidential human sources. They bury uh, they, they bury their corruption and they make it impossible for people to ask questions. And then they turn it around on the people who are asking questions saying, oh, no, no, you're the problem. You're the one who's going to get people killed. And look, by the way, 
I don't know if we want to, you know, if we want to go there right away, but I think it's it's worth reminding viewers that this is a lot of the language we're hearing right now around the Mar-a-Lago raid. You might have seen Senator Mark Warner on, um, I can't remember what show it was over the weekend, but he's talking about, oh yeah, these documents that, uh, that Trump has uh, are going to get people killed. And so we've heard a lot of the language about confidential human sources, that that's what some of the documents that uh, former President Trump may have had around Mar-a-Lago. So that's why I think a lot of people think that there's a, a connection, I know I certainly do, between the Mar-a-Lago raid and Russiagate. Well, you, you have a you know, really fascinating theory around this, and I actually I, wa- I want to jump into that in a moment. Before we go there, uh, let's talk just a little bit about sure. you know, what, I guess, how uh, Durham has built his case or forwarded his case in this finding. I mean, essentially, uh, you know, Danchenko said one of his subsources was this guy, Sergey Million, who was, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> vilified, you know, his life was, uh, attempts were made to destroy his life. It turns out that Million, you know, just got, kind of had nothing to do with any of this and was probably just shocked to discover that he's named, that he's, you know, basically associated with this whole thing in the first place. I mean, it, it, it's a really heartbreaking story. I mean, I, I didn't... Um... Because Sergey Millian's role, as, as this had been reported early on, was very confusing. And of course, this was a function of Fusion GPS and the FBI screwing things up or screwing things around so that Sergey Millian looked guilty. And it was hard even for a lot of reporters with the prestige press who were reporting this story honestly to figure out what Sergey's role was. I, I, I remember reading the book that Simpson and Fritz wrote and they, were, they pointed out that what they did was they alerted uh, an ABC news producer they'd known to the existence of Sergey Millian. So they set Sergey up. It wasn't just the FBI, right? This was also Fusion GPS that set up Sergey Millian. They put him in front of the cameras on ABC News. And um, the heartbreaking thing about it is this. I mean, Sergey and I, you know, traded trade trade messages. He tells his story very honestly. He's understandably very suspicious um, about the bad people who have done uh, who have done bad things to him, and he's very worried. He in the Durham filing, they note that Sergey is not going to return to the United States to testify because he's worried for his safety, the safety of his family. Um, And also he doesn't trust the FBI. And for good reason, because the FBI, I wouldn't say that's destroyed his life. So I think wherever Sergei is, he's doing great. He's doing great right now. He's living his life well. But remember what happened here. I mean, this is a guy who, as a young person, had an opportunity to come to the United States and succeed. And he did. He first landed in Atlanta. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the guy went out and did everything, right? He, 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 he worked as a translator. He came over for a hotel fellowship. He, um, he started his, his own organization, the Russia-America Chamber of Commerce. He, so he, he was a real go-getter, and finally he became an American citizen. I mean, it, it's just such a beautiful immigrant story about a guy looking at America from abroad, and this is what he wants, and he comes, and he's a hardworking guy, and he's so successful. And what do they do? American law, federal law enforcement, and the media, the prestige media, set this guy up. They frame him as a spy. And they do this incredible damage to his life. So one of the things that I keep telling Sergey whenever, you know, whenever we're in communication is, boy, I, I hope this is all over soon. I'm, I'm, I, I want to take you out to, 
you know, take you out to dinner and we'll, we'll, we'll all go around and, 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 you know, just celebrate that you're back here in your country because it's, it, it's a heartbreaking story and God bless Sergey. He's such a good guy and has such a strong character and is such a great American. So I hope he gets to come back to his country soon. So I think in this filing, Durham makes a strong case that Danchenko was lying, you know, and especially this, you know, this uh, around Sergey Million. It seems pretty, pretty strong. He also has as a witness the guy who allegedly provided the quote unquote P-tape information who's saying this has nothing to do with anything. I mean, that, that's my paraphrase. Yeah, this is a this is a clerk at the Moscow uh, Ritz Hotel. Um, who I, I, I think the filing says that he doesn't speak Russian. He's a German guy, um, you know, which I guess makes sense. They have a lot of international travelers coming in and out of fancy hotels like that. But yeah, apparently he's going to testify at the trial, which should be great because it'll dispel the biggest, you know, of course, this was how they sold the whole dossier, right? It's actually kind of a, a, a fascinating communications plan. Because the underlying message is, you know, Trump was colluding with Russia, a well-organized conspiracy with the Kremlin, right? That's the message that got the spy warrant on the Trump team. But how did it get everyone's attention? It got everyone's attention by talking about the P-tape, right? So, again, it was so clearly just a communications strategy. This had nothing to do with law enforcement. It had nothing to do with counterintelligence. It had to do with selling it to the press, uh, uh, selling it to the public, getting their attention. And then what was, there was another, uh, another play going on behind the scenes, which was this same document that was out there smearing Donald Trump was also a document that was used to get a warrant to spy on American citizens. Terrible, ter- just terrible. Um, Lee, we've been discussing how, um, you know, essentially, and I mean, actually, it was is you and Cash that kind of brought me over to this view um, that this is, you know, the whole Mar-a-Lago thing is really just an kind of an extension of Russiagate. And you actually have a very interesting theory about what it is they were exactly looking for um, and, and why. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it really was cash because cash is saying, yeah, you know, that's I, I, that's what these clowns are looking for. And I, th- I think when I when I say clowns, I'm probably quoting cash directly on that. Um, you know, at first, when I first saw news of the raid, my immediate impression was, well, it's it's obviously going to be about January 6th stuff because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to roll up all the January 6th defendants and Donald Trump and tie Donald Trump to them and seditious conspira- conspiracy and whatever other you know nonsense they're making up. That was my earliest assumption. But, you know, then I heard Cash continue to talk like, no, 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 I, I believe this is about Russiagate documents. So I looked at the timeline. I laid the timeline out and it sure looked at the t- two things, the timeline and they're responding to cash. They're responding to different things that cash is saying. Um, they're misinterpreting what cash is saying, I believe, but they're hearing what they want to hear. And I think that's part of what prompted them to move on Mar-a-Lago. And the other thing is, if you look at the different press reports, especially from the New York Times, which uh, carried, uh, carried water for that crossfire hurricane team, for the, you know, the, their Russiagate investigators. If you look at the language that they're using around this, this is all Russiagate language. And that's what I meant before, going back to that moment 
uh, May 2018, when the DOJ and the FBI are freaking out about confidential human sources, and that at the time was referring to Stefan Halper, right? Of course, we know is not really a confidential human source. The guy was a political operative, and he's out there, and he's trying to set up everyone. Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Svetlana Lokova, um, you know, but that, that's who they're protecting. But again, this is a lot of the language, and I urge, um, I urge our audience here, Cash's Corner audience, to, well, I don't like to send anyone back to the New York Times or Washington Post at this point, but as you're reading through the reports, pay attention to that stuff about confidential human sources um, and Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants, because you see this in lots of the reporting. And your audience, Jan, Cash's audience, you guys will know better than anyone else what this language is referring to, right? It's referring to Russiagate stuff. Because the, the idea that Donald Trump has somehow got documents um, referring to other confidential human sources, that he's got a stash of papers on confidential human sources or is collecting FISA warrants is preposterous. There's only one case that involved FISA warrants and confidential human sources that is of interest to the 45th president of the United States, and that's Russiagate material. Well, and so, you know, you at the beginning, you, uh, you know, alluded to the fact that they were that the um, people orchestrating the Mar-a-Lago raid were misreading what Cash was saying about the documents. But it wasn't really clear. Can you just kind of lay out to me what you think happened there? Uh, In a May interview, I think it was May 5th with Breitbart, um, they asked Cash to comment on reports that Donald Trump had classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Audience, if you have time, check out my article at at Tablet Magazine from a couple of weeks ago on this, where I have all the links where you can follow it closely. Um, May 5th, Breitbart interviewed Cash. Cash said, no, this is not true. Donald Trump does not have classified documents there. Um, And then he made another comment, which is often uh, lost. He said, look, the president declassified a whole bunch of different documents. Some of these had to do with Russiagate, the first impeachment related to Ukraine, and a whole bunch of other things that are uh, of vast interest to the American people. So I think what is possible, what is plausible, is that FBI and DOJ listening to that are thinking that that's what Trump has down at Mar-a-Lago because the two different uh, currents got mixed up a bit. The question was about Mar-a-Lago. Then Cash transitioned into saying, look, regarding the documents, the president has full declassification authority. He said, no, that he didn't have stuff that was uh, classified at Mar-a-Lago. And then he went off, again, to a somewhat parallel track, saying he declassified a whole bunch of stuff. I think it's possible, again, what the FBI understood was is that that's what Donald Trump had at Mar-a-Lago, these Russiagate documents or these documents related to Russiagate. Then there was another, um, another, and this is equally dense, Donald Trump appointed Cash and John Solomon to be his representatives to the National Archives, right? Because they wanted, they wanted these documents. They wanted the Russiagate documents. Um, and Archives said, well, Cash and Solomon eventually found out 
that the archives did not have a record of those documents. I think what happened was is that the FBI, they felt that Donald Trump had a copy of those documents because none of those Russiagate documents were in the 15 boxes that went to the National Archives in um, February, January. Um, so uh, I, I, it's, it's a little confusing and a little dense. But again, I hope if you, if you go back and check out that article, I explain it clearly there. But the important thing is the timeline and the likelihood um, that the FBI was listening to what Cash and others were saying, John Solomon, and they misunderstood it. And that's why they're on the hunt for Russiagate documents. And just to kind of recap for everybody, um, you know, there's... According to Cash, again, um, about 60% of these Russiagate-related documents um, were, that were declassified were, are already available, but there's 40% that are not. And it, you know, at the end of the last administration, the Trump administration, basically Mark Meadows um, was going to, I think, release these, if I recall correctly, but then there were, uh, I think the FBI or the DOJ cited privacy concerns. So he passed these over to the to the DOJ, and basically at that point they just disappeared. They essentially disappeared right into the ether, so to speak. Yeah, perhaps never. Yeah, with the idea to never be seen again. It makes me wonder what is in these documents, <laughs> and I, I really I really want to know badly. And of course, you know, both Cash and Devin Nunes, um, um, you know, they're they're very serious about their their uh, treatment of classified information. So they're not they're not sharing. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, you know, it's like the scene at the end of uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When they take the Ark, the, this, the most uh, precious possession, perhaps, in world history, and they hide it away. And the point is, no one will ever see this again. And I think that was the idea with the DOJ. We're going to take these documents and we're going to file them next to the Ark of the Covenant. And no one will ever see these documents again. Now, you know, certainly we hope uh, the next Republican White House will make these documents available as Donald Trump wanted to, to make them available to the American public so we can understand what the FBI and DOJ was up to at that point. I mean, one of the things, Jan, that you and I have spoken about for so long is this just keeps going on. So it's like we're playing catch up. We're talking about documents here, about things that happened six years ago. And look at what's going on now. I mean, now the thing that we want is we want to know what was going on with, uh, with Mar-a-Lago. What's the decision behind that? What are the documents behind that? And, you know, and, and, and there's a reason that Mar-a-Lago looks a lot like Russiagate, right? That, remember the affidavit that was released about two weeks ago? It was so heavily redacted, it reminded us of the heavily redacted FISA warrant on Carter Page. So we're seeing all these duplications. And the reason for that is that looks like Russiagate because it's Russiagate. But we keep moving along. We keep pushing along. And, you know, it was thanks to people like uh, Cash and Devin, that we got some information, some transparency to begin with, and we hope that John Durham will provide more, and certainly the information he's giving us will help with transparency. But I think people want accountability, and that's what the American public wants too. People who broke the law, people who violated the trust of the American public, who the FBI and DOJ are responsible for protecting, if they violated our trust, if they broke the law, they have to be held accountable. And what have we seen instead? We've seen a six-year-long campaign 
to defend themselves, to avoid accountability. And that's why they made Igor Danchenko a confidential human source. Not because he had any useful information. They put him on the uh, U.S. taxpayer dime so that they could protect him. Again, the scandal grows larger and larger the more information we have. So, Lee, it's time for our shout-out. Uh, I love the fact that you and Cash do this every week. I find it really moving, and I'm so honored that I get to do it this week. And this week's shout-out goes to the Russiagate corner of Twitter. Uh, these guys have been amazing. I mean, I, I, I've learned so much from them. Jan, I, I know you have, too. We all have, and it gives me... It's just amazing to see people who not only gather information, but they disseminate information to help educate their, their fellow Americans. So I, I'm, I'm going to shout out with as many names as I can remember, but there have got to be 30, 40 people who have been doing great research for the last four or five years. So we're going to start with, we're going to start with some of the guys who are also with the Epoch, uh, Epoch TV team, and that's uh, Hans Monke and Jeff Carlson. Thank you. I also want to shout out to Monsieur Ghost. He was one of the first people, if not the first person, who understood how Sergey Millian was being framed. He's great. We have Fool Nelson, uh, a, a savant, a genius. Technofog, uh, a, a legal legal mind, fantastic. Stephen McIntyre goes under climate audit. Let me see. Walkify, a rising serpent. And the other one that I really want to make sure I name, that I shout out to, well, first of all, Shem Infinite, because Shem is going to get mad if I don't remember his name. The other person I have a big shout out for is my man, Undercover Uber. We haven't seen him in so long, but the stuff that he was producing on Russiagate is just amazing. So we love you, Undercover Uber. Come back. And um, again, big shout out to the Russiagate corner of Twitter. You guys are the best. If I forgot some of your names, go ahead and give me a hard time. But you should be on um, Truth Social anyway. And we'll see you next time on Cash's Corner. (laughs) 